I, I don't know how many Christian meetings you've been to, but um, for me, they tend to blur into one. And there's, there's only a few that really stand out in my mind as I can really remember that clearly. But one of those is, is uh, a, a meeting that I attended when I was 17 years old. And I'd just become a Christian in the last sort of six months. I'd grown up in a Christian home. Um, but it was really in the last six months that I'd given my life to Jesus and, and for myself. And a friend dragged me to this camp that Mike was speaking at. I we hadn't met at that point, but he was, he was giving a talk. And um, I was in this tent with maybe about 800 other young people. And Mike gave a talk, and I can't remember to the life of me what he said now, but I, I remember at the end of the talk, he did something that really grabbed my attention. He, he said, basically, I finished my talk, and then he said, um, and now what we're going to do is we're going to invite the Holy Spirit to meet with us. And, and then he did that. He invited the Holy Spirit, and then we all waited for the Holy Spirit to meet us. And I remember that, that, that shocked me and it intrigued me because I had grown up um, in, a, in the church and so I'd, I knew of the Holy Spirit, I'd heard of the Holy Spirit, I'd recited uh, liturgy about the Holy Spirit, I'd even done a GCSE, would you believe it, in RS. And so I knew that God was a trinity, that he was Father, Son and Holy Spirit, one God and three persons. So I knew all this stuff about the Holy Spirit, but up until that point in my life, as far as I was aware, I had never been in a room where somebody had actually invited the Holy Spirit and then waited for him to... To, to turn up and to meet with us. And I just watched in fascination as the people around me met God in all sorts of different ways. And, and I left that meeting and I don't think I've ever been the same since. And um, I, I now know I really probably should have read my Bible a bit more because th this, this truth about God filling us with his spirit is core, really. It's central. It's the meat and potatoes of so much of what Jesus is saying as he's preparing his followers for uh, his, his return to heaven. And so there's this long talk that he gives in John chapters uh, 13 to, to 17, where he's, he, it's the Last Supper and he's kind of, he's, he's telling them all these incredibly important things in that moment as you would at the Last Supper. And one of the things he says to them, because he sees their sorrow, he sees how sad they are when, when he said to them, no, I'm going to return uh, to be in heaven. And to reassure them, um, he says, it's a good thing for you that I'm going back to the Father. That's a good thing. Just that statement in itself blows my mind. How could it be a good thing that Jesus himself, who's there in person, leaves? Surely that could only ever be a bad thing if Jesus was leaving. But he says, no, no, it's a good thing and the reason it's a good thing is because when I get back to my Father, I, I'm going to ask the Father and He will send you the Holy Spirit to be with you. He's another like me. He'll guide you into truth. He'll comfort you. He'll convict the world. So this is a big part of what Jesus is saying as He's preparing His disciples for His own return to the Father. And then sure enough, after the resurrection, at the start of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, he says to them just before he ascends to heaven, just before he returns back to be with the Father, he says to the disciples, don't go anywhere. Stay in Jerusalem. And then when, you, when you're waiting in Jerusalem, when you're staying in Jerusalem, my Father will send the gift that I've promised and you will be filled with, or you'll be baptised with the Holy Spirit and you'll receive power to be my witnesses. And so that's what they do. They gather in Jerusalem and they're waiting. And then the day of Pentecost comes and Mike read this and I'm just going to reread it. Um, this is Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. 
When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them, not just some of them, each of them. All of them, not just some of them, all of them, were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And then what happens is they spill out into the street. They're overcome with joy. A crowd gather because this is, it's a strange, unusual thing to see happening. So this big crowd gathers and then Peter stands up in front of this crowd of thousands and he preaches to them. He tells them about Jesus. And at the end of that, having him shared with them the gospel, someone yells from the crowd, what must we do to be saved? And Peter answers that question with this. He says, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Note that he does not say, and then you will talk about the Holy Spirit, or you will think about the Holy Spirit, or you will sing about the Holy Spirit, or even you will believe in the Holy Spirit. He says, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to underline in the next sentence who, is, who that is for. He says, The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So what that says is that the, the, the Pentecost, the day of Pentecost is not a one-off moment or an event, but it's the beginning of an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And it's a time that we are still living in now, these days for all whom the Lord our God will call. This promise is for. And as I've been trying to prepare for this Sunday, I've been thinking about some of this stuff. And it's just reminded me afresh just how good the good news is, how good the gospel is. Because I, 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 sometimes I think it's I've forgotten and other times I think I've just never quite realised it in the first place. And I think so much of what it is to follow Jesus is realising as we do the journey what we have already received in him, what is already ours, and learning as his, as his people and as brothers and sisters together to meditate on these truths and to savour them and to enjoy them together, that we have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's not the reward of the Holy Spirit for those people who perform very well. He's not the wages of the Holy Spirit for those who work hard enough to earn him. He's the gift of the Holy Spirit given to all who say yes to following Jesus. And we don't deserve him and we cannot earn him, but we're given him freely anyway. And um, the enormity of that is hard to wrap our heads around, particularly because we're just used to it in the sense of this is what it is to follow Jesus. We've grown up. It's like we're children born into wealth. And so we never really appreciate the fact that we live in a massive house and we have all this stuff and we don't need to stress. But, but, but in these days, before the day of Pentecost, and certainly in the Old Testament, the place that God dwelled was in the temple. The temple, this sacred, um, extravagant, beautiful building that people would approach with reverence. And God dwelt not just in the temple, but specifically in a place called the Holy of Holies, which was behind a big curtain. And only the high priest was allowed in there once a year. That was where, in a very real sense, God lived. 
So if you wanted to write him a letter, you would have to write God the Temple, Temple Street, Jerusalem, and stick it in the post. That's his address. Um, And what Paul says, and this is this huge sort of seismic change from what it used to be to what it is today. What Paul says to the church in Corinth is he says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have received from God? And we can mistakenly think of the Spirit as an influence, um, as some kind of force or a vibe even. But the Spirit is, He is a person. So when we talk about meditating on, on truths together, here's a truth that we can meditate on. The living God has taken up residence in our hearts. He's, he's dwelling inside of us. He's living in us. And the like, if we can just try and appreciate the treasure that he's put inside of us. Like another way of putting it, Paul says, is that we are like jars of clay and he's hidden his treasure inside these cracked pots. And you are a bunch of cracked pots. But he has put his treasure in us. Imagine if you're walking down the main high street in Watford and you've got five pounds in your pocket. Probably, if that's the case, you don't think about it too much because five pounds is nice to have, but it's not going to get you very far. But imagine, can you imagine walking down the main high street in Watford and you've got a bag and in the bag is five million pounds? How would you walk in that moment? I don't know about you, but I would be, I would be very excited. I would have this tremendous amount of joy. But also, I know what I would do is, even though it's irrational, every, sort of, every 10 or 20 steps, I would stop just to check it's still there. I would open up the bag and I would just be like, no, no, it really is there. No one's taking it from me. And, and there would just be this, there would be this joy, but there would also be this, this wonder. And this also, I'd be, in a way, solemn because I'm like, oh my word, what I'm carrying around with me right now is incredibly precious. Do we realize the vastness of the resource that he has put inside of us, that we carry around with us every single day? We are temples of the living God. The living God has taken up residence in my heart. So what that means is when I walk to the office, the living God is inside of me. It means when I talk to my neighbour, that the Holy Presence, the person of God, dwells in me. It means when I go to sleep at night, I am lying there and the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Jesus, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is lying there with me. I have God inside of me. How good is the good news? It's good. And it doesn't stop there because whilst that is the fact that we're given in the scripture. And whilst that is a truth that we want to meditate on, it's meant to be more than just facts and truth. This is meant to be a matter of experience. It's meant to be uh, an encounter. And so on the day of Pentecost, they don't just sit there in the upper room sharing facts with one another or talking truth or having a discussion. They, they don't even just have a revelation of the Holy Spirit. They are filled with the Holy Spirit in that moment. They're filled with him. And they encounter him in that room. And however much, and again, this is another truth that I can't shake, however much we have met God and however much we've been filled with the Holy Spirit uh, and we've gloried in the kind of truth that we've just talked about, there's always more. There's always more of him to me. And and all we need to do is, is think of the roles of the Spirit to see the sense of that. 
The Spirit is the comforter. He's the helper. He's the one who convicts us of sin. I don't know about you, but I need more comfort, more help, and more conviction. The Spirit is the one who empowers us to be witnesses. I don't know about you, but I need more power to be a more effective witness. I know I do. And above all, the Spirit, what he does is he reveals Jesus to us. That's his primary job. That's what he loves to do. And again, I don't know about you, but I need to see him more. I know him, but I long to know him more. I understand some of his love, but I want to get the vastness of it, the height and the breadth and the width of the love of Jesus. I, I, I know some of it, but I know enough to only know, I, I know the tip of the iceberg, just scratching the surface. And it's the Spirit who does that. His role, uh, his joy is to take the truths that we believe about Jesus in our hearts and make them, move them, as it were, from theory to reality. From doctrine and talk about God to to experience of him. Um, Think about the difference when you're a child between your dad saying, I love you, versus your dad grabbing you in an embrace and squeezing you tight. And you're there squashed in his, in his arms, hearing his breath in your ear and feeling the beat of his heart against, pressed against your chest and, and, and enjoying that experience of his, the strength of his arms wrapped around you and knowing his strength and his, his kind of protection in that moment. It's, it's one thing to hear he loves you and it's another thing to feel his love. That, that, that difference is the work of the Holy Spirit. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says, What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. He gives us His Spirit so that we may understand what God has freely given us. And the word for understand here, it doesn't mean I get it in my head. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's an experiential knowing. It's like we get it in the whole of our being. Sometimes when we hear about or we read about the love of Jesus, it's, it's like you see a postcard or you, it's like having a postcard of a beautiful destination. And uh, we like it and we cherish it, but the Spirit takes, as it were, that postcard understanding of the love of God and he turns it into the experience of actually sitting on the beach with your toes buried in the sand, hearing the sound of the sea and the sound of the birds, with a drink in your hand, basking under the warmth of the sun. He turns, as it were, the recipe into actual taste. That's what he does. And he does that when we come to know Jesus for the first time. He will do that ultimately when we see Jesus face to face. But he also does that time after time in between those two moments. And... I suppose another way of putting what I'm saying is that the Spirit of God is available and there is more of, more of Him to encounter and to experience that we might know more of Jesus better. Where, where we struggle sometimes with this, this is where I struggle anyway, is that we, we struggle to believe that God really wants to fit us with this Spirit. We find that hard to accept. And we have different reasons for that. One reason is we don't think much of ourselves. And, um, you know, I'm in that position. I don't really think I deserve the Holy Spirit. And and the the answer to that is not, oh, you're actually not too bad. 
Um, the answer to that is actually it's nothing to do with that. It's nothing to do with us. In the same way that we receive forgiveness just because it's a gift from God, it, it, so too we're given the Spirit and it's everything to do with His goodness and everything to do with His mercy. Another reason we sometimes struggle to really accept that He wants to fill us, He wants to bless us with more of His Spirit is because we doubt His goodness. Again, perhaps because of our experience or our encounters or whatever we bring, the baggage we bring into knowing him. But we can have sometimes this deep resistance inside of us to believing in the goodness of our God. And, um, you know, and we, we see these scriptures and we hear these truths. Okay, the Spirit fills all believers on the day of Pentecost. All right, Peter goes out the house and he says, the gift of the Holy Spirit is for all whom the Lord has called. All right, Paul writes to the church and says, hey, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We, we hear all of this stuff, but, but we disqualify ourselves still. And we still struggle to believe in his goodness towards us, towards us. We can accept it in a general way. He's good. But towards us is where we come kind of unstuck sometimes. And if there is a solution to that, it is to come back to who Jesus is and what he shows us about who God is. And these are the final verses that I want to read. And I just want to unpack them and we're going to pray. Jesus says in Luke chapter 11, starting at verse 9, he says this. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. And then just to really make it clear, he, un he repeats the whole thing again. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So what this says is there is a role for us. We do have a role in, in, in receiving more of the Holy Spirit. And our role is to ask and to seek and to knock. But... but um, what, this, what Jesus is, is underlining in triplicate in this, in this saying is not just that we're to ask and seek and knock, but what happens when we ask and when we seek and when we knock, what happens is we are given um, the Holy Spirit. He says, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That's where the emphasis lies, on the fact that he wants to give us what we've asked for. Whenever I hear in the scripture it's saying, seek and you will find, it always reminds me of games of hide and seek. And I don't know if you've ever played a game of hide and seek with a little kid, but generally it's best in those circumstances to clarify the rules beforehand. Because if you do it during the game, they will always go against you. And I remember hearing a guy uh, talk about how he used to play hide and seek with his little niece, Alice. And she would be like, oh, Uncle, I'm so glad you're here. Let's play hide and seek. And he'd say, well, what are the rules? And she would say, okay, well, here's the rules. I'm going to go and hide behind the kitchen door and you count to 10 and then come and look for me. And he says, sorry, can you say that again? Yeah, I'm going to go and hide behind the kitchen door. You close your eyes and count to 10 and then come and look for me. So he closes his eyes, he counts to 10. Where's Alice? Is Alice in the cupboard? Squeals of laughter from behind the kitchen door. 
No, she's not in the cupboard. Where's Alice? Is Alice under the table? Squeals of laughter from behind the kitchen door. No, she's not under the table. Where's Alice? Is Alice behind the kitchen door? Absolute hysterics from behind the kitchen door. There she is. She's just loving it. And then she says, okay, uncle, we're going to play again. We're going to play again. All right, this time the rules are you close your eyes and count to 10 and I'm going to go and hide under mummy and daddy's bed. And they would play again. And, and I love that because it's this picture for her, the exciting bit was the being found. And in a way, in that sense, God is like Alice. He says, okay, here's, how, here's, here's the rules, all right? You seek and you'll find me. I want you to find me. So I'm going to make it absolutely clear that if you seek me, you will find me. And this bit at the end, again, I love this. Jesus says, If you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And whenever I try and come up with an image of, as a father, giving good things to my kids, the the most obvious thing, and I know I've said this before, I'm going to say it again, that comes into my head is not me giving good things to my boys, it's Mike giving good things to my boys. And you've been around, if if you've been around a while, you know that the main area of tension is how much chocolate he thinks my children should eat. And his love language is food. He is Greek, that's how he blesses you. If you say, I'm hungry, he will say, I will put a leg of lamb in the oven right away. Um, and he, he, his, his understanding of quantities is way, way off the scale. So when he would travel, often what he would do is he would come back, go through the duty-free at an airport and buy my boys chocolate. And whereas I would say to him, just buy them, if you're going to buy them something, just buy them like a milky bar or something. He would buy them these really extravagant sort of ridiculous Belgium truffles or, um, you know, boxes of Swiss chocolates that are like top of the range. And, and he'd say to me, mate, they like being able to choose. I've seen Josiah's face. He likes looking at the box and just deciding for himself which one he wants. And I, I honestly, I'm like, are you sure that's not just what you like doing? Um, but Judah will sit there and uh, he's a little bit older now, but he'll eat like these chocolates that look nice on the surface. And then he finds out it's like a liqueur. And it's almost like torture for him. This looks like a chocolate, but it tastes disgusting. Um, Anyway, and so he loves to do it. And they know he loves to do it. And so they'll often ask him, because I put boundaries, something called boundaries, which are healthy and good for children, um, in their lives. And they know he has no boundaries. And so they'll go up to him when I'm not around and they'll whisper in his ear, can you buy me this? Or can you buy me that? Or can you buy Judah this? He told me he wanted it. Or whatever it is. And they do the same things with chocolates. And I remember Mike showed me a little while ago a Marco Polo, like a, a video message that Josiah had sent to him when I was in the same room. And so it starts with Josiah just going, oh, hello, Uncle Mike. I love you. Um, and, uh, and, then, and then Josiah obviously sees me in the background, so he whispers the rest of the message and he just said, and bring me chocolates. Um, and what, what, what I realised with Josiah and with Judah and their Uncle Mike is they just know how it works now. They absolutely know how it works. And they understand that when they come to their Uncle Mike, their Greek extravagant over-the-top Uncle Mike, whose love language is food. And they ask Uncle Mike for some chocolate. They understand, not just in their heads, but deep down in their bellies, that they are pushing on an open door. (laughs) Now, if Mike, though he is evil, (laughs) knows how to give good things to my children. 
how much more? Seriously, think about it. How much more will our Father, infinite in His goodness, incomparable in His mercy, the one who didn't just form us in the womb, but who gave His only Son that we might have life forever with Him, how much more will He give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? We are pushing on an open door. We have the Spirit of God inside of us. He lives in us. We are His temple. And yet, there's so much more of Him to know and to an experience. And all the qualifications we need is to want that and is to seek it. Amen. Amen.